Welcome to Environmental Laws, a podcast where timely and relevant EHS topics are discussed by Thompson Hine attorneys and industry experts. For those who don't know, LAW stands for Land, Air, Water, and Safety. My name is Nathan Hunt. I'm an attorney in Thompson Hines Environmental Practice Group in our Dayton, Ohio office. Today, I'm joined by Jackie Baxley, the EHS practice leader at HRP Associates. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for joining us today. Before we dive into today's topic, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about HRP. Great. Yes. Hi, Nathan. And thanks for having me. As a self-proclaimed podcast junkie myself, I'm a subscriber to this podcast, so extra special for me to be a part of this today. So thank you so much. So since 1982, HRP has worked with its clients to assure that they move their environment forward. What we mean by moving your environment forward is we work to minimize the environmental and health and safety risk associated with our clients' activities and help them reach their business goals. HRP is a multidisciplinary compliance, environmental, and civil engineering consulting firm with several offices across the company. We have a strong digital footprint, including a YouTube channel and an active LinkedIn community. And we, too, also produce some podcasts. Great. Thanks, Jackie. Today, we're going to discuss a typical OSHA enforcement case and the roles that legal counsel like myself and consultants like Jackie can play before, during, and after an OSHA inspection. So this is going to be a real treat for all you safety nuts out there, all, all three of you probably. But hopefully, we can provide some useful tidbits to those of you who also just have an environmental focus. So I thought we'd start, Jackie, with a quick overview of a typical enforcement case, one where OSHA conducts an on-site inspection. This is almost always an unannounced inspection. Uh, it's usually in person in a non-COVID world, and uh, it typically consists of a few components. One, the inspector's going to show up at the facility. They're going to want to tour at least part of the facility, probably uh, focusing on the parts of the facility that are the subject of whatever was prompting the inspection in the first place, whether that was a worker complaint, whether this is a routine inspection, et cetera. Doc requests are also a common part of this type of inspection. Almost certainly the inspector is going to ask for things like 300 logs, uh, certainly documents that are relevant to the inspection. So if they're there for a guarding complaint, they're going to want to you know, have guarding uh, training materials and uh, perhaps certain procedures, things of, of that type. You might also run into employee or even management interviews where, uh, particularly in a, when an accident occurs, uh, the OSHA inspector is very interested in talking to employees who perhaps witnessed the accident, uh, management folks who have responsibility over the air, area, et cetera. And then the timing of it all. You know, how long is this going to last? Uh, you know, I've been involved in situations where the inspection lasts less than an hour versus inspections that have lasted almost six months. So it really obviously depends on the circumstances of the particular case. And then the inspection will end with a closing conference. And at this conference, what happens is OSHA, the inspector will gather everybody together and basically give a quick summary of the findings of the inspection and, and probably will identify the likely violations uh, that will arise from the inspection. So I guess the point there is you're given a heads up by the inspector as to what to expect in the mail later when the uh, inevitable citation shows up. And Nathan, I think it's worth mentioning that not all OSHA inspections are on site. OSHA still refers to them as phone fax inspections, although I don't think a phone nor a fax is actually used anymore. But these letter inspections or these remote inspections um, could address employee complaints about unsafe working conditions um, that are typically deemed low risk. Um, in a nutshell, OSHA sends an employer a letter that identifies what the complaint or the issue or the concern might be and tells the employer to investigate it and then respond in writing to OSHA with the results of the investigation and, and the findings from that investigation, as well as any corrective actions that the employer has taken or intends to take. In most cases, um, OSHA takes no further action if the underlying issue has been resolved. 
the the last OSHA inspection that I was involved in with a client of ours was just a few weeks ago. And it was this phone fax inspection that was the result of an employee complaint. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I have, too, been involved in a number of these, uh, certainly over the years, generally. And like you said, almost always, it seems like if the employer promptly responds uh, during the you know 15 days or so they give you to respond with basically, hey, what did, what did you find? What did you do about it? Uh, I would say most of the time you don't see any follow-up from OSHA. Maybe a letter coming back saying there will be no further uh, inspection or investigation of this. But, but the, the better point, I suppose, or, or maybe another point to raise from this is ocean enforcement can arise from a number of different areas. You know, this focus today is on the on-site inspection that typically, in my experience, and, and probably yours as well, results in a citation. You know, if they were going to bother to send somebody out to your facility, usually you can expect they're going to find something and you're going to be cited for it. So let's talk about citations. At the closing conference, the inspector will say, hey, look, here's what I saw, and um, these are the likely violations. But that's not, you haven't been cited at that point. You will be cited formally at a later date. This can be up to six months after the inspection. That's the typical statute of limitations. This will show up, you know, certified mail at your facility, and um, it will lay out what the violations are, what the, what the regulation was that was violated. So when you receive that citation, what are your options? You've got, you know, you can timely pay uh, and abate the violation. So some people do that. They get it and they say, well, I'll just pay the $7,000 fine and I'll fix the guarding issue and that's the end of it. And they don't really care about fighting it. Another option is to participate in what's called an informal settlement conference Every citation comes with an offer from OSHA to participate in an informal settlement conference. This is a, a meeting essentially with the office that issued the citation to go over it where you can discuss anything you really want. It's, it's sort of everything's on the table, and typically it's a very excellent opportunity. We'll talk about it in more detail later to settle uh, favorably the citation, particularly if it's, if it's not a situation where we're talking about a $500,000 penalty or something to that effect. But even in that instance, frankly, I would not overlook the opportunity of simply going in and talking with OSHA because you really have nothing to lose by going that approach. The, the, uh, the sort of the extreme end of the spectrum is, and this has, some people do this, is they get the citation, they don't bother to participate in the informal settlement conference, they don't want to pay the penalty, they want to fight like, uh, fight like mad, and they say, I'm going to submit a notice of contest right away, and I'm taking this to an administrative hearing. Uh, so they want to litigate, and um, you know, it is an approach, my view is it's expensive, and, you know, Nathan, I think I'd be a pretty bad consultant if I didn't say, let's try to avoid a citation entirely. So what can we do to prevent ourselves from getting to these citation conversations? What can I do now to ensure that I have a, a pleasant and maybe favorable, maybe not pleasant, but favorable outcome from a potential OSHA inspection? And so what I'm talking about here is to have a program in place and, and a program in place that has dedicated persons in its management. So when I say program, I'm essentially speaking of four key elements. And that is, um, we're talking OSHA here, so I'm talking about a health and safety program, but this could be an environmental and health and safety program. But, but what you essentially want is you want written procedures you want training in those procedures. You want to check that you're actually following your procedures and that they're working. So you're inspecting to ensure that they're being implemented and that they are effective. And you also want accountability relative to the application of those. So four key elements, written procedures, training, inspections, and self-enforcement. Of, of those procedures. And Jackie, you know, I, one thing I would, I would jump in and say is what I've seen over the years, particularly in mid-size and smaller companies, is you know, why don't they have this program in place? And they, they think it's going to be very expensive. 
and it's not, you know, most of the time it's, it's like an off the shelf template and, and it's really just papering it with, like you said, the necessary training, the necessary updates, et cetera, but to, to create it, to put the program in place is really not a huge endeavor. And it's something that a lot of companies, I don't think, don't necessarily appreciate the employee responsibility component. That's a key component to the enforcement case we're talking about, because one of the defenses we can throw out there is unavoidable employee misconduct. But we can't use that defense unless we have a program in place that shows this is what we do when an employee engages in misconduct. You know, we, we penalize them, we give them a written warning, and the second time you know, we send them home from work, and the third time they're terminated. If we don't have those procedures and are not following them, OSHA is going to dismiss immediately that defense when we try to present it. So, Right, absolutely. And, and, you know, it can seem very daunting on how to approach and, and have these written procedures and training. It, it definitely seems like a daunting task. But a systematic approach is, is very helpful in this. And, and, and recognizing that companies are going to be at different parts of their journey. Um, and are also going to be equipped with different levels of resources. And when I use the term resources, talking about an EHS program, um, I mean time, time being a key resource. I mean knowledge, knowledge being a key resource. You know, what if you don't have an EHS department or EHS, you know, technical person on site? Um, you might not know the details of the lockout, tagout, or machine guarding or hazard communication program. So. So time, knowledge, and of course, you know, financial resources all do come into play. But what we recommend is if you have the resources to engage in a consultant or technical professional, then you can have a gap analysis to see where is your program now and where does it need to be? As you just alluded to, you might have a great program. You just might not be enforcing it. And, and then Closing that gap is just maybe some better training, some better understanding of roles and responsibilities, and, and better enforcement of what you already have. And, and really, regardless of your program, whether you're just developing it, whether it's a mature system, or it's somewhere in, in between, all programs need to have the tenets of the Plan Do Checked Act protocol. So this is kind of the classic dimming management system model. Um, because that's going to identify, as, as you alluded to, maybe we're not really enforcing our programs the, the way that we've developed them. Um, uh, you know, making sure that, you know, our systems are working, they're doing what they're intended to do, we're getting the intended outcomes, and we're looking for continuous opportunities for improvement. Um, and also with that Plan Do Checked Act, you're, 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 you're looking yourself for potential violations. You're looking yourself for those situations that could result in a citation. So that if an inspector knocks on the door three months from now, you've already found it and fixed it yourself. And, and so you're in a much more favorable position relative to uh, handling that, that OSHA inspection. And, and you know, one thing that I've also kind of found is being able to have that, that show that that journey, show that continuous improvement does go a, a long way um, in, in showing an inspector that, that you take uh, environmental health and safety matters you know, seriously, that, that you yourself are constantly looking for opportunities for improvement and, and ensuring that you have a, a healthy and safe work environment for your employees. Yeah, I, I would say in this day and age in particular, you know, an OSHA inspector, an EPA inspector comes into your facility and you do not have an EHS program, uh, you know, you're on another planet, basically. I mean, you better be a very, very small manufacturer, very unsophisticated to get any level of sympathy from the inspector for not having that program in place. Right. And by having a program in place, you know, not only are you maybe a little proactive and you've already identified the issues that need to be addressed and you've addressed them, or as I like to say, you found it and you fixed it, you know, it will also ensure that when you do have an inspection, you don't kind of have that running around, you know, like a chicken with its head cut off moment. So obviously the, uh, the one thing that we all agree on, you and I at least agree on, and uh, many of our colleagues agree on, is, is the importance of the check element 
of the program, and that usually consists of doing routine compliance audits. And obviously, we have participated in many of those. Uh, maybe walk us through some of the benefits of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to note um, all all facilities have compliance issues, and 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 the compliance issues might be minor in nature or they could be major in in nature no system is perfect and and having these audits can be instrumental in identifying those gaps and and then closing those gaps um and and so it is a necessary step to find it and fix it so that you can improve your management system so you know Different companies, again, getting back to that resource topic, different companies will have maybe different schedules for their audits. Um, they'll have different protocols relative to whether they're what I call cross audits. It's really important that whatever your program is, whoever's doing your audit, that you make sure that you're not slipping into biases. Um, you know, I, I think I, I read an article once that when you walk past something for 10 days, your brain already associates it with being correct, which is probably <laughs> why my son's shoes are still on the stairs, you know, two weeks later. Um, That's how, that explains that, why my kids walk over everything like it's in the hallway? Okay. Exactly. Well, the cooler is still on the porch. The, the shoes are still on the stairs. The, the backpack is, is still in the kitchen. Exactly. You walk past something so many times you start to associate with that as being normal. And, and so when you're doing an audit, it's very important that you take into consideration biases. Um, it's important that you recognize we're going to find items and that's good. This is a self audit. You want to find the items so that you can then fix them and you can then improve. And when the inspector comes, they don't find the, the items. And then you have a defined frequency. Um, typically, I see one maybe every two years. I have seen people go every three years. Um, but you want to just make sure that you have a system in place. You know, Nathan, I don't know if there's a recommendation that you guys normally have for clients, but I typically say don't go more than three years um, by any means relative to doing these compliance audits. Yeah, I, I think that's right. The frequency issue is interesting to me because you see a lot of different approaches to it. I have had companies, for example, that used to do an audit at every facility every single year. And we've come back to this issue several times, but it's worth mentioning again. I mean, cost is an issue and companies you know, will say, look, where can I save a little money? Do I need to be auditing my distribution centers every single year? Maybe I need to be maybe auditing the manufacturing facilities where there's a higher risk of accidents, violations, et cetera. So here's two examples. One example I have is a company that's gone to a schedule where they audit every manufacturing facility annually, but non-manufacturing facilities that they view as lower risk fall into categories of either two years or three years, depending on their size or certain operations they may have at those facilities. Another company I work with, they, for everybody, manufacturing, et cetera, go on a multi-year schedule where they typically won't, you know, by default, audit manufacturing facilities, for example, annually. What they'll do is they'll audit you and they'll create a baseline and you get a score based on the findings. Then from there, they will determine how frequently you're audited. If you get a good score, your next audit may be in three years. If you get a bad score, you're going to be audited next year. If you're really bad, you might get audited in six months. So that's they do have the sliding scale, and then that sliding scale can be impacted by something unexpected like an emergency. So, for example, let's say a manufacturing facility gets a good score. They're not supposed to be audited for three more years, but then they have a fatality at the facility six months after the audit. Well, that impacts their score, and then they're going to be audited next year because of that. There's a lot of different variety here, but if it's your run-of-the-mill, sort of mid-sized, let's say small manufacturer, I would say at least every three years, unless something critical occurred between year one and year three, i.e. You know, a major enforcement action or a major accident where you're saying, whoa, we really need to slow down and take a look at our program. Right. And, and a couple of other elements that, that I've even seen applied as well when you're looking at this frequency is look at your turnover 
as well. If you've had some turnover at, you know, upper management positions, especially in EHS or plant management, then you might want to uh, increase your frequency just to make sure that there's no backsliding. Um, if you have a good system that shouldn't be relying on one individual, um, so so one individual leaving shouldn't greatly affect your system. But but uh, I have seen folks where where they've experienced some turnover in in upper management or EHS management that they've increased their frequency at least temporarily, and then also look at other changing situations such as mergers, acquisitions, newly acquired facilities. Um, or even uh, new processes and product lines coming on board to make sure that nothing fell through the cracks when we added on that whole new manufacturing wing, um, that we did all of our pre-startup safety reviews and we have all the guarding in place, we have all the, um, all the lockout tagout procedures in place, we have all the chemicals in our, our safety data sheet, you know, database and, and, and things of that nature. So those changing situations might also affect the the frequency of of your your audit program. Um, so, main thing audits expect findings. Findings are good when you're finding them. Findings might not be as good when OSHA is finding them, but you want to find them so you can fix them. Make sure you have an unbiased inspector and that you have a frequency that works for your risk profile. And, and the benefits from these are not only that you're able to be proactive and improve your system, um, but an EHS program is going to be a lot cheaper than OSHA enforcement. And as you mentioned earlier, Nathan, you know, OSHA views companies with EHS programs much more favorably. And, and some of what I've seen as well as your customers might also view it a little bit more favorably. We've seen uh, many of our clients have to respond to customer questionnaires about their health and safety <laughs> performance, whether it's what's their recordable incident rate or what's their, you know, uh, what's their EMR? Uh, are they ISO 45001 certified? You know, sometimes it's, it's actually the customer that is sometimes driving these programs as much as it is the regulations that's driving these programs, especially if you are a key supplier to a customer. They want to make sure that you're not going to have to shut down because of a fatality or you're not going to have to, you know, limit some of your production output because you're having to deal with, you know, uh, an enforcement. And, and this is a huge, I mean, issue for publicly traded companies, uh, at least those that are, you know, take this seriously, which most do in my experience. You know, these are types of things that have to show up on their their public, you know, SEC reports, et cetera. And so when we get to the enforcement component, um, some folks would say, well, geez, if I get issued as, you know, $7,000 penalty for a, you know, a serious violation that we can fix relatively easily, why, why do I care about this? Why do I want to fight this? Well, part of the reason is a lot of these companies either voluntarily or, or obligated to report this publicly, and they want to show to those customers and those prospective investors that they're well run, that they're thinking about these types of things. And, and let's not also underscore just the benefit from the employee perspective as well. So having an EHS program that you're continuously auditing and improving you know, not only is going to help you with those publicly traded companies, as you mentioned, it's not only going to help you maybe with some of your customer base, not only going to help you in preventing, hopefully, an OSHA citation, but it's also going to go a long way for your employees to feel like you are an employer that cares. And, and at the end of the day, the reason why we have an OSHA health and safety program is to ensure our employees are safe. And for your employees to experience that firsthand, in the application of your program will go a long way in fostering the engagement and the buy-in from your employee base as well. And one other thing on the benefit side to mention, I think, is in, we were implying it, but I don't think we were very direct about it, which is the actual reduction of the penalty amount that can occur by having this program. I mean, there's, there's a little known secret out there that OSHA has a field operations manual this field operations manual is publicly available. It's on OSHA's website. Uh, it's you know hundreds of pages long, but it is their game plan. It lays out 
everything they're going to do, how they're going to plan for the inspection, what they're going to do when they're at the inspection, what they're going to do after the inspection, and it's going to lay out all of the defenses, uh, at least the, the legal defenses that OSHA recognizes that are available. And one of the, and, and uh, beyond defenses, things like uh, penalty reduction factors that OSHA will consider when negotiating a settlement with you. And one of those is, do you have an EHS program? And right there, just having that program in place will allow you to potentially get a reduction in the penalty, which is the easiest negotiation in the world, where you can walk in and say, look, we've got an EHS program. And they say, great, we're going to knock 20% off of this penalty. All right, so so let's, let's get back to kind of the, the original subject matter, right, which was the OSHA enforcement. And, and we've been talking about what we can do proactively, which I could probably talk all day about being proactive because that's primarily as a consultant what, what we focus on. But, but let's talk about what to expect if OSHA does show up at your door. So in preparing for an inspection, let's also just kind of go through what to expect when an inspector shows up at your door. And when they arrive, they're going to present their credentials. And, and they're going to then hold an opening conference. So when they arrive and they present your, their credentials, that's where you should exercise whatever that phone tree is or, or get those key people at your facility involved that are part of your inspection team, if you will, should, should OSHA uh, show up at the door. And, and then when you're sitting down at that opening conference, the inspector is likely going to say what the nature of the inspection is whether it's a focused inspection, maybe it's the result of a complaint, or what the, the nature of it is in, entirely. And then they will kind of drive what to expect for the, the rest of the inspection. Um, so whether that, that inspection is going to proceed over just another hour or two or days you know, following, you'll kind of get a gauge of, of what, what's going on with that opening conference. And, um, and, when they, and when they show up, like you said, the opening you know, they knock on the door, they present their credentials. And, and like you said, hopefully you have a program in place, whether it's just, hey, call this person or get these three people involved, et cetera. And that's completely fine. And, and every company should have that. They should have a system where they, they can assemble a team quickly because the level of participation you're going to want uh, with respect to the inspection depends on a lot of things. It depends on your level of sophistication. It depends on do you have that plan, et cetera. And, and I know my experience has been that I've seen three basic participation levels for outside legal counsel. The first is over the phone participation where my phone rings, I pick it up and it's the manager of a facility saying, OSHA's here, what do I do? Uh, but they don't want me to come to the facility for a variety of reasons. So typically that participation boils down to you know, sitting in on that opening conference over the phone, maybe asking OSHA some questions, and then off offline when OSHA's outside of the room, maybe having a strategy conference with the team to go over some key points, you know, keep the OSHA inspector on task, you know, don't let him wander around the facility, all that kind of stuff. But over the phone participation is something that we see a lot. Then you get the, you get the uh, client who wants you there. Yeah, stop everything, tells the inspector, we've called our attorney or their consultant and they're coming to the facility and you're going to be there with the team, walk around. I think that's valuable when there has been a high level incident that um, requires, is going to, there's some delicacy to it that, that the client will benefit from having counsel or a consultant present just to, just frankly sometimes just to add to the team another idea someone who's not there every day who might see things that are a little different but my favorite is what i call the no role where i don't hear about the citation i don't hear about anything until i get a call and say hey we got this citation in the mail today and we'll say well what happened did you get inspected oh yeah we got inspected six months ago and uh you know this is what happened and blah 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 now, typically, my experience with that has been there's two types of clients. The, the one type of client is the very sophisticated client who has a, all the things you've been talking about in place. They handled the inspection fine. Uh, they didn't see any reason to get counsel involved until they determined if they were going to be cited or not. And now that they've been cited, they want assistance in negotiating a settlement. 
The other is the cost conscious client we've been talking about, usually the smaller business, mid-sized business, maybe the, the one who still isn't really sold on the EHS program benefits and thinks, oh, you know, we'll just pay the fine, et cetera. Typically, they don't call you because they're cost conscious. And now that they actually see a number, they see a penalty amount, they're saying, uh-oh, I don't want to pay this. I'm calling my attorney or I'm calling my consultant for advice. So again, it's all over the spectrum, uh, depending on the types of clients, et cetera. But the nice thing is we have to be flexible, right? We, as the consultant and the attorney, have to understand our clients have different expectations based on their circumstances. And we have to be prepared to you know, jump into any of these situations, whether it's on the phone, at the facility, or not until the citation is issued. Right, exactly. And you know what? I think as a consultant, I can say that I've probably plugged in in all three of those situations as well. So whether you're calling Nathan, you're calling Jackie, or somebody similar to, to the hats that we wear, Nathan, um, some, some coping tips to keep in mind, again, that you can thread into your program is um, just make sure that you have that protocol established up front. Who are you going to call when an inspector shows up at your door? So make sure that you have those protocols in place of who you're going to call, who you're going to get involved. Maybe it's just a notification process. Maybe it's a getting somebody there process. Maybe it's getting somebody on the phone. But just make sure that you have that established on the front end and, and so that you can implement it when it, it needs to be, be implemented. And, and also, you know, cooperate, but, you know, you don't have to be a pushover. Um, so there are rights and wrongs and there are gray areas when you're talking about regulations. And one thing when I say the don't be a pushover is, is that starts with when the OSHA inspector presents their credentials. And, and I'll give you an example. There's a, there's an industrial facility that, that I work with that I've been going to this facility for probably over eight years. And every time I go, I have to sit in the lobby and watch a 15 minute safety video before I go in past the, the lobby. You know, I've been going there for eight years. I still have to watch that safety video before I go in. OSHA inspector is a visitor as well. So if you have protocols you require of your visitors, you know, OSHA is no different. Um, any inspector is no different. So make sure that you don't skirt around any of your normal visitor protocols just because it's an OSHA inspector. Um, yeah, here, here's a good, here's a good example of that. I mean, that was very interesting to me is the inspection of a large chemi chemical facility following a fatality. OSHA shows up, they want to tour the facility. We go through all of what you just discussed, watching the safety videos, making sure everyone has appropriate PPE, et cetera. We go out to do the tour and we're about to enter the facility and OSHA brings out their camera. And the EHS individual at the facility set asked if the camera was intrinsically safe, meaning was the camera capable of being used in the facility without causing an explosion because of the electrical components of the camera? It was not. They didn't think about that, and we wouldn't let them in. And they were furious that we would not let them in. But we stuck to our guns, and we said, there's no way we can let you in. Our safety protocols tell us no one's allowed to have a camera like that inside the facility, and we're not going to make an exception for you. So a good a good coping strategy and a good time management strategy sometimes by by thinking to your guns that way. Um, also, just some other ideas to keep in mind for these coping tips. Um, ask OSHA to confirm the inspection scope at the onset. Normally, they'll they'll indicate that in the opening conference, but if for some reason they don't, um, go ahead and ask. And and it is really important if if it's possible for you to have counsel like Nathan on the phone, consultant like me on the phone um, during that conversation of what the scope of the inspection is, that can really be helpful if the inspection starts to turn, so, so to speak. So um, gives you grounds maybe later um, to resist some expansion of the investigation, you know, if by chance it, it kind of goes in, in that direction. Also within that, you can ask, you know, what's the nature of the records and the documents that they're going to, to look at? Um, what's the nature of the areas they're going to want to visit? You know, sometimes if it's a large manufacturing area, they might be specifically interested in just one part of the process. 
Maybe it's a fo focus inspection. And so they only want to look at one area or maybe they're investigating a complaint. And so they really kind of just want to look at the area that that is centered around the complaint. Um, this is not the time to show off the facility. So you do not want to hide anything. You do not, you, you do want to be, you know, uh, truthful with, with the inspector, but, but this does not need to be show and tell time. <laughs> so, so just, if they just want to see the printing press operations, then just take them to the printing press. You do, do, do not cut through warehouse. Don't cut through other areas of the facility, but take the most direct route. One of my favorite things, too, particularly if it's a larger facility or even in not a larger facility, but it's, it's just set up in a way that allows us is to drive wherever you're going to literally walk out of the office, get into cars, drive around the building to the entrance that most directly takes you to whatever they want to see and then take them back the same way so that they do not get anything but a view of the dashboard of the truck they're in. Exactly. Exactly. And another good tip. Um, don't don't let the inspector wander around by themselves. Believe it or not, I have a client once that told the inspector that they were too busy to spend the day with them. So just opened up the file cabinet drawer and said, have at it. And, and I like to have a team of folks involved. I like to have one person that is dedicated relative to the the, the escorting and, and, and Q&A associated with the inspector, but maybe have another person that is there as a scribe. And, and, and that's where actually as a consultant, sometimes that's where, where we've plugged in is we've been the scribe of the audit process or the inspection process. We document the opening, you know, we document from the opening conference all the way through what records they asked for, what records we provided, you know, what questions were asked, how we answered, what areas we went to, what pictures they took. We scribe and document the entire thing. Um, and so that way, Nathan, if somebody like you gets involved, you know, and you're asking, so tell me what happened. Well, okay, here's the whole transcript of what happened. So, and I'll raise two other points before we move on. That They're small, but I think they're really, really important. One is uh, you're going to get a document request. You're probably going to get multiple document requests from OSHA. And in my experience, a lot of inspectors will just ask for documents. They won't submit a written request. They won't write it down. And if it's a particularly large inspection or uh, for a variety of reasons, maybe you weren't prepared, you are, you are going to miss some stuff. And you, then you're going to get an angry note later that says, well, where are these documents? I told you to have these within 15 days and I haven't received them. And you're going to have no recollection of that. And frankly, OSHA is required to submit these in writing. And I always tell my clients, you know, when they call me and they say, hey, OSHA's here, they've asked for these documents, is it okay to give them these documents? I will say, well, yes, it sounds okay. We might want to look at the documents first before we provide them. But more importantly, go back to them and tell them to submit that request in writing so we have a record of what was asked. Because that benefits all the parties. It benefits OSHA and it benefits the client because everyone knows what's being asked for. And the other thing I'll mention is during the inspection, um, legal counsel for the company isn't necessarily supposed to be present for employee interviews. You know, those employees, uh, OSHA's allowed to interview those employees without me, the legal counsel, being present. And that's fine. But management personnel speak for the company. They represent the company. What they say is what the company is saying. And so it's very important to, at the very least, if OSHA makes a request to interview management-level folks, which... Some people say, oh, he's not a manager. He doesn't have a manager in his title. That's not the definition that OSHA uses. So think very broadly. Does that person have any management responsibility over anyone else at the facility? You probably want to classify them as management under many circumstances if they're going to be interviewed. And at least let legal counsel talk to them first uh, to kind of walk them through what the interview is likely to consist of and you know what they you know, again, being transparent is obviously very important, but at the same time, folks don't need to volunteer information. Uh, folks should keep their answers short, it, much like a deposition where if, if the answer is yes or no, yes or no. If you don't know the answer to something, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know the answer to that, but we can give you that information later after we conduct our own investigation. So something that's a key point that people often will overlook when it comes to management personnel. 
and you know, which also brings up a good point. Prior to my consulting days, I worked in industry myself. And uh, those of us that fell under that definition of management, we actually went through training on how to answer questions. And the one, the one thing I remember about the training is be comfortable with silence, which I'll be honest with you, I'm not a person that is comfortable with silence, but be comfortable with silence. If they ask you a yes, no question, and the answer is yes, and you say yes, then be quiet. <laughs> And then let them ask the next question. You don't have to expand. You don't have to fill. You don't have to fill that that dead air space. And so all of these tips that we're talking about will eventually get you to the closing conference. You know, maybe that closing conference is two hours after the opening conference. Maybe it's two weeks, two days, two months. Who knows? But but there will be a closing conference, and and you will get an idea of kind of how it went. I've been a part of OSHA inspections where the inspector was using a form to document everything that occurred. I asked for a copy of that form. They normally don't volunteer it, but they've always provided me a copy when I've asked. And, and that's just a copy of their notes, their photo log. Their, it's, it's information documenting your inspection. And in these closing conferences, Again, whoever you involved remotely in the opening conference, make sure you involve them again in the closing conference. You know, so let's talk about what you can do in that time after the closing conference until you get that either written citation or that written all clear response. Correct any undisputed issues that OSHA identified in the closing conference. Um, now, notice I say undisputed issues. I've been involved in inspections where the regulator talks a lot about what they like to see, but when you receive the report, none of those preferences are noted because preferences are not regulations. Um, so, so make sure that you know, if there is truly a finding, it's undisputed, that you go ahead and you address those. Anything that has a question mark next to it, kind of put it in a different column, Engage your, your corporate, engage your consultant, engage your counsel for those that have question marks. And on that point where you have the balance between what's required under the regulations versus the preference, sometimes it's worth fixing something to the preference of the inspector because it will help you later on in the negotiations because you will be able to demonstrate you went above and beyond what's required and you did something specifically that that particular inspector or that particular OSHA area office likes to see. I mean, whether that's conscious or subconscious, it's going to work favorably in the settlement negotiations. Exactly. Especially if it's something that's not particularly cumbersome, not particularly expensive, you know, is, is, is truly something that's going to continuously improve your system anyway. Now, also, let's say that you have, let's say you're part of a, uh, a multi-location company. Let's say you've got locations in the Carolinas, in Ohio, in Indiana, New York, and Connecticut. And let's say it's just one of your facilities that was inspected and, and had some findings associated with it. Consider in this interim time period between the inspection and the citation to conduct some EH&S audits at targeted facilities um, within your organization. You know, why? Well, this could be a proactive step that might uh, provide leverage in the eventual settlement negotiations. Nathan, that's probably something you can talk a little more to. Um, but then also auditing other facilities might be a way of getting ahead of an expanded investigation. You know, maybe it's a pretty serious situation that they identified at, you know, plant one. If that also could occur at plants three, seven, and two, then you want to be on the front end of identifying that and correcting that, not on the back end of identifying that and correcting that. Yeah, I mean, you, you have a real risk of, of repeat violations when you have these multi-location uh, companies and facilities. And the, the risk here is, uh, let's say the initial facility was inspected and a guarding violation was identified. Well, now you have, let's say, six other facilities across the United States that have similar operations that over the next five years from the time that citation is finalized, uh, those other facilities could be inspected. And if that same violation or a similar type of violation is discovered during those subsequent inspections, 
a repeat violation could be issued. And the repeat violations come with much, much more strenuous penalty amounts. Um, they look a lot worse on those public filings we were talking about beforehand. And the reality is if you know what the violation was at the initial facility, you can conduct audits, as you said, at these other facilities to confirm that that type of situation does not exist there. Uh, and frankly, even if you don't want to do audits, if you have a, robu a robust EHS program that, for example, requires your facilities to routinely get together for calls to talk about, you know, hey, this is what we're seeing at facility X and this is what we're seeing at facility Y. I have a lot of companies I work with who do things like that. And we will make a point to bring up that facility X was cited for a guarding violation and all the other facilities who have that type of equipment need to make sure that they're adequately guarded, et cetera. So that's a way where you can do this type of thing without necessarily conducting an audit if you don't want to, but you have to take some action. All right. Well, we are, we are heading for the finish line here. We've done the grand tour. We're heading for the grand finale, which is you've got your OSHA citation in hand. And now what do you do? You know, what do you do with it? And we've been alluding to and talking to throughout this, some tips, et cetera. But uh, as I've said many times, call, call your EHS counsel. Call someone like me who has experience dealing with these. Most of the time, you're going to have a much more cost-effective uh, solution achieved by doing so. But here's some tips I can throw out there. You know, two big areas to think about when you get the citation. One is assess your case. Obviously, immediately you're going to look at your case and you're going to say a couple of things. One, you know, is the citation accurate? Is it factually, is it legally accurate? Were, for example, were, did what the inspector said at the closing conference, does it match up with what you received? Is it the same regulation they brought up in the closing conference? Are the facts correct that they've laid out in the citation? Oftentimes, they're wrong. And right there is a point that's going to come up in an informal conference or in settlement negotiations, et cetera, when you uh, engage with OSHA about this. There's always OSHA guidance on a number of these major topics like lockout, tagout, guarding, you know, PPE. Um, so find that guidance, look at the guidance, look to see if there are nuances that apply to your particular citation. You know, was the guidance, for example, on inspections applied appropriately? Get out the field operation manual that I brought up earlier and look at its guidelines and see if there are any little nuances that you can uh, pick up that uh, help your case. Field operations manual also has the standard OSHA defenses. Take a look at those. We talked about employee misconduct. There are other uh, defenses, greater risk, for example, the no exposure defense. Again, look at those defenses, look at what happened, look at what you've been cited for. Do you have any valid arguments that those apply? And there's going to be mitigating factors that you need to consider. We've talked, you know, throughout this about doing audits, you know, taking action independently, et cetera. You know, these are things you should catalog as you're preparing to negotiate the settlement so that you can remind OSHA of all the good things you've done to address the violation that they, they might have identified. And, and you should consult, you should consult, you know, Jackie, you should consult HRP, whoever your consultant is, because they may have valuable information or assistance they can provide. And, you know, that's a great point, because here just recently, I'm, I'm thinking of a project that we were engaged on where um, OSHA uh, inspected a facility, actually took some industrial hygiene samples while they were there, and even though the site had about 10 years of, of, of data showing that they were never above the permissible exposure limit for this contaminant of concern, OSHA comes in, takes some industrial hygiene monitoring, so all of a sudden they're twice the PEL. And, and so they then brought us in to essentially review the historical information as well as do some more recent samples. Um, it made it particularly difficult because um, in this case, OSHA wouldn't share with us their chain of custodies or anything about the data that they collected, um, but which Nathan, I'd put that in your court, um, but we were at least able to do a, an independent investigation and evaluation of the historical data, as well as current data under numerous 
operational you know situations to where we were able to help support the defense that it was OSHA's data that was the outlier, not the historical data and the current data that we were able to uh, to collect as, as a result of our involvement in the case. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point. I've seen that happen before, too. And, and it goes back to what we were talking about also with respect to what to do during the inspection, which is, of course, duplicating whatever OSHA does. So if OSHA is taking samples, you take samples, too, because you know, your data may come back differently and it may come back more favorably. And, and that could be for a variety of reasons, including error on the part of OSHA. So, so going back to the assessment, you've assessed your case. You've gone through these points we've discussed. Now you really have to think, what are my goals? You know, what am I trying to accomplish here? And I really think there are three primary goals that I see in most cases. One is the client who wants just to lower the penalty. They don't care about anything else except the fact that they want to save as much money as possible. There are other clients who the penalty isn't really a big deal. They, they're more interested in the violation itself and, and, more importantly, the classification of the violation. Those of you with safety backgrounds know there's willful violations, which are the worst. There's repeats, which are bad, showing that you didn't fix a problem or you let a problem arise again. That's already been cited. There's serious violations, which I said earlier, really implicate a condition at your facility that is a poses a threat of a serious accident like an amputation or even a fatality. And then you have the lowest category, which is other than serious. There is a category called de minimis. We won't get into that. But other than serious is where most people want to be if they can get there without actually having the citation completely withdrawn, which is the, the third category. The third category would be, hey, look, you're just wrong, OSHA. You know, you're wrong. The facts are wrong or the law's wrong or something's wrong. And for these reasons, or we have a good defense, employee misconduct, for example, and we want you to withdraw everything, withdraw the citation, withdraw the penalty. This basically never happened. And so you have to figure out where do I want to take this? Because the next step is going to be, what do you do now? So Nathan, I have a question for you. Um, all good points, um, but but to back up your comment where you said call your EHS counsel, we work with a lot of organizations that either lack relationships with counsel or whose in-house counsel might not have experience in health and safety or environmental matters. What would you recommend to any of those folks out there listening that don't currently have counsel to call? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think it would depend on the actual circumstances, but I would hope, again, with based on my experience, most companies in the manufacturing sector have need for consulting services. They've used consultants for something over the years, if not regularly, at least periodically. I would reach out and call uh, your consultant to give you assistance on the issues. I think that's a good approach. The consultant likely will have EHS connections, EHS council connections if that's necessary. So I, I think that's a good starting place. For those companies out there that really don't have a relationship with a consulting firm, they, they're still going to have some relationship with a law firm or an attorney. And again, through the, the referral networks that are out there, I would pick up the phone and call my attorney. Even if my attorney is a business attorney who has no background in OSHA enforcement, hopefully they can set you up with someone who you can at least have a conversation with who does. So we're going to do a callback here to the beginning of the, the podcast, which was when we were giving the high-level overview of you know, what do you do? You know, what are, you've, you've set your goals now. You've assessed. You've set your goals. Uh, what do you do? Do you just pay the penalty? Do you uh, go to the informal conference? Do you litigate immediately right out of the gate? And you heard me say, go the informal conference route. This is offered in every case. It's essentially a settlement conference. So what you say is privileged at the conference. You can be very candid. And it's a wonderful opportunity that I just I'm always a little concerned when clients uh, aren't interested in, in partaking in it, because nine times out of 10, I really feel like you're going to get a, a better outcome 
by just participating in that informal conference. And, and a couple points about that. Why? Well, first of all, you're probably not going to be dealing with the inspector. You're going to be dealing with the assistant area director or the area director for that OSHA area office. They're going to be sort of fresh to the case. Uh, they have a sort of a higher level view of things, and they're often more willing to listen, to take into consideration abatement you've performed or mitigation factors. They've probably been around longer. They've seen a lot. They're probably familiar with your company if you've been around for a while. And so they have experience with you. And if you're a good actor, generally, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So definitely, it's good to get in front of that individual but who should, who should be there? You know, who should you take to the conference? For larger companies, I always feel like you need an EHS corporate rep, somebody who can speak for the company as a whole, who has an EHS background. Good to have the plant manager there. And then a third individual, whether that's the EHS manager for the facility or just one or two employees who have particular expertise regarding the issue, regarding the violation or the equipment at issue, so they can speak to this in a, in a level of sophistication that, frankly, the well-versed OSHA area director, assistant area director is going to understand and appreciate. And they're going to much more appreciate talking to those individuals than me, the attorney. And I rarely am ever present physically at these informal conferences. I usually participate over the phone usually kind of play a high level, almost mediator role of just trying to keep the conversation going and pushing it in the right directions um, and keeping our folks on our agenda to the degree that is possible to make our points, et cetera, and, and lay, lay our case out. Uh, the consultant, though, I think sometimes has a role here, Jackie, and I mean, you can speak to that more, but it's it's on that same issue of having the employee with technical expertise. You might not have that. And that's good to bring in a, a consultant who can speak to equipment, et cetera. Exactly. Especially if you're talking about a very technical standard, uh, like process safety management, for example. We've been involved in some, you know, really detailed, you know, high-level calculations associated with, you know, is the site subject to process safety management or not? And, and you start getting into such detailed engineering calculations that sometimes you do need, um, you need to get the, the nerds in the room sometimes to, to, to talk out the details. And frankly, you should never assume that the, the key decision makers on either side uh, know how that equipment works or that process works, you know, well, that's one of the dangers you have to avoid is that, you know, there's three people talking who understand everything completely, but the people who actually are making the decisions, maybe it is the area director, isn't overly familiar with that type of equipment. And having someone there who can walk through the process or the equipment, explain why, for example, the employee was engaged in the behavior they were. We had a case, for example, where we had a piece of equipment that was built, I think, in like the 1930s. And we were cited for not having uh, engaged in our lockout tagout procedures. And we had to explain to set the machine up, it was impossible to lock it out and actually run the machine. It just, it, it was almost grandfathered in. And, and after we explained it to the area director in this particular case, he appreciated that and understood it. And it ultimately helped us move the case to a better position because now he understood and he was much more receptive to what we were saying when before he thought, candidly, we were kind of full of it. So having that person there, even just to explain at a low level how equipment works, et cetera, you may think you're boring the area director, but don't assume they know what you're talking about. Better to just bore them a little bit. They can always say, no, no, I'm familiar with that. You don't have to get into those details. Well, the, my biggest point I will make about the informal conference, at least the actual participation in it, is don't turn it into a legal hearing. Don't turn it into you know, a deposition, et cetera. What you, really your goal is, is to get the company's folks there, and they're going to talk to OSHA, and you're going to be there to facilitate that conversation. And the less the lawyer says, and to a degree, the less the consultant says, the better, frankly. Going back to why, why would you have us there beyond what we've already talked about? Well, we've mentioned it several times, this, this cost-effective nature. And I'll 
say it again, which is I do these a lot and I have settled almost every case I've ever participated in either at or shortly after the informal conference. And in every case, I can't think of one where we did not get a better outcome, where we did not get an outcome that the client uh, ultimately appreciated and said, yes, that was way better than I thought it was going to be, whether it was the penalty was drastically reduced, whether we got everything withdrawn, whether we changed the language of the citation to better fit what the client wanted in order to avoid a repeat later, uh, whether it was getting that reclassification, which is very important to some clients. This is a super cheap way of doing this. I mean, you can do it over the phone. And the, the prep time it takes is relatively minimal. I mean, it's getting on the phone several times with the client, you know, creating an agenda, going through that assessment I talked about earlier, what are your goals, and laying that all out for everyone, maybe doing a little prep, and then going into the meeting. Now, a couple of things you can do during these to help sweeten the pot for OSHA. One I've seen used quite a bit, and, and Jackie, this is right up her alley, which is OSHA loves it when you offer to do an EHS audit as part of the settlement. In other words, you say, well, I want this reclassified to other than serious, and I'm willing to do an EHS audit. And they say, oftentimes, great, we'll do that. But I mean, have you had experience with that, Jackie? Yeah, absolutely. And and I've seen where, um, well, just recently, the uh, at the onset of the of the podcast, I mentioned that we recently were involved in one of those phone fax, you know, inspections, and it was an employee complaint. Um, through our investigation, it did not seem as if it was a legitimate complaint. Um, but our response was, we appreciate you bringing this to our attention, where we don't uh, find any evidence to support the complaint, we we still intend to conduct an EHS audit to identify if there are any other areas of the facility where we could, you know, garnish any type of improvement. Um, and and that all ended very satisfactorily, you know, from from both OSHA and and our clients' perspective. And I've seen it in cases where on that point where you're going to be doing them anyway where there's a little back and forth between you and the agency. Uh, perhaps you didn't settle it at the informal conference, but you've continued in your negotiations after the settlement or after the informal conference. And um, OSHA will throw out the, uh, well, well, why don't you guys do an audit? And of course, you know, in your in the back of your mind, well, well we were going to do an audit this year anyway. So that's great. Yes, we will do an audit uh, and you will reduce the penalty. So that's a real win-win that uh, you, I guess the point being is you don't have to necessarily throw out the we'll do an audit within the first five minutes of meeting OSHA, but keep it in the back of your mind. It is a good chip uh, to be used. Maybe if your settlement negotiations have hit a bit of a log jam, et cetera. And, th and that's a good uh, segue to the, well, what if you don't settle at the informal conference? You know, is that the end of the world? No, it's not the end of the world. We, I'd say about half the time we settle, at the informal conference. But what we typically do is, in almost every instance, we've made progress. And the agency recognizes it, we recognize it, and we all agree that we want to continue to negotiate the finer points of the settlement post the informal conference. So what we typically do in that situation is we file a notice of contest to ensure that our, our claims are, are protected, but you get both parties to continue to engage in this back and forth. And you've gone to the informal conference. Like we said, you've made some progress. You've probably gathered some valuable intelligence from just talking to OSHA, kind of getting their frame of mind about the case, et cetera. Uh, and like I said, just because you file a notice of contest doesn't mean you are locked into an administrative hearing. Certainly, if that's the route you want to go, you can do that. But uh, you've kept your options open, really. Jackie, I think we've reached the end. Any closing comments, words of advice, words of wisdom? I, you know what? I just can't stress enough having an EHS system. Have a program in place. You know, make sure that you you have that gap analysis. You know, whatever gaps you identify, make sure you get those written programs in place. You train to those written programs. You do your self inspections and you enforce. And and if you can do that, then the rest of this conversation, hopefully you can ignore <laughs> because you would be finding it and fixing it yourself 
and not find yourself in these enforcement situations. Thanks. Thanks to everyone who joined us today. Thank you, Jackie, for joining us on behalf of HRP. And until next time. Great. Thanks, Nathan. <laughs> this podcast is for informational purposes only. It provides general information and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. Thank you.